Hello everyone, it's July 10th, 2018. This week we look at Cheops. Is it Cheops or Cheops? Anyway, it looks at exoplanets, and we get an update on Phantom Express, a space plane that will observe, well that's classified. But let's talk about what we do know, and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 166 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. Good morning. We just spent five minutes talking about bacon, so we can maybe you <laughs> so want to move on to set that aside. Yeah. Well, we can talk about eggs. I could. I can talk about eggs for a while though, because uh, I'm passionate. I've eaten two eggs for breakfast pretty much my whole life. I mean, mm-hmm. more or le- more or less my whole life. I sometimes I'll take a break and I'll have uh, a nice bowl of oatmeal. But egg yolk is the most amazing thing on the planet to me. And it makes me cry when people mistreat it. You mean like don't use it because they want to save or because they're trying to lose weight? Like like that kind of thing? No, no, no. I mean, uh, egg egg whites, like egg white omelets are really nice because you get a lot of like uh, lacy curliness around the outside, which is really nice. But when, when people cook eggs and overcook the yolks, it's just, it's so sad. Like when you get boiled eggs and they're green and like there are people that think that egg yolks aren't cooked until they're green and they just get that horrible not mealy but like that texture that just like coats the inside of your mouth like a that's what it is it turn it turns the entire yolk into the same feeling as the membrane under the shell and it's just like so gross you're very passionate about breakfast food um, oh yeah which i appreciate although for me breakfast usually is two eggs in the morning but i go through phases so it's more like i'll go like two months on than two months off and and it's just something that happens because i just can't eat eggs all the time but i mean i can eat them pretty often and they're healthy i mean they are kind of well i don't know what i think i I think there was a there was like an ad from years ago that was like eggs are the perfect food do you remember that i'm sure yeah they're not it was big (laughs) too high cholesterol (laughs) it was the big egg industry or whatever (laughs) it was putting that one up big egg (laughs) i mean they're they're not horrible but yeah they do have a lot of cholesterol i guess but i think that i don't know it seems that there's always so much back and forth about what is good and what's not and good cholesterol versus bad cholesterol i don't know which ones the eggs have well the the problem is i think if you if you eat just eggs it's totally unbalanced and i think i think balance and variety is much more important Mm -hmm. than pretty much anything else so for a long time what i was doing was i would just buy a bunch of different vegetables and and you know on sunday i would chop them all up and have a big uh, gallon ziploc just full of all sorts of different kinds of veggies and then in the morning i'd throw you know a handful or two into a pan and saute them and then uh, throw some eggs and then wrap it all up in a tortilla and just eat mostly vegetables for breakfast. And that was really good. But my wife hated it because it made the house smell like Brussels sprouts all day. And she didn't like that. And no, not having Brussels sprouts in there was not an option. I've never, I, okay, <laughs> see, I don't do Brussels sprouts for breakfast. That's weird. But no, I do, I do Brussels sprouts and sweet potatoes and onion and broccoli and uh, some leafy greens, usually either spinach or you know something more hearty like mustard greens. Oh, just so good. We record this podcast in the morning. You just had breakfast. I had a bagel. That's it. So no, I had an English muffin, and now I'm getting hungry. So maybe we should <laughs> uh, get on with the show so I can go try to make food. I mean, I can't cook like you can, but I do have vegetables. See, so. we, we would be in trouble if we lived closer together because what would happen is we would record the show together, and we'd spend an hour cooking breakfast. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great idea because you like to cook and I like to eat just as much as anyone. Plus, I want to You learn. like to be cooked for. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, can you just cook for me? Because I'm just lazy. So, hey, space. So, space and space flight <laughs> history. Yeah, that's the thing we talk about. Uh, we have one winner. I don't, me- I don't remember the clue. Right. So, the clue was sometimes when the star can't make it out on stage, an intern will have to do. And uh, you 
kind of harped on the use of the word intern, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah. Uh, our winner for this week is Chubby Turkosi, who uh, apparently is back in business. And Chubby not only guessed the event, but explained what the clue meant. So full points. I was expecting to get some uh, half, ha- have to give away some, you know, partial credit here, but um, that didn't happen. So this week in spaceflight history is the 12th of July, 2000. It was the launch of the Zvezda module to the ISS. So Zvezda was actually pretty much completely built in the 1980s. Um, they, you know, did some finishing touches in the 2000s, but the the main structure of the vehicle, as well as a lot of the internal components, were built in the the mid 1980s. I mean, it, I think it was like pretty much done in 1986. And the reason is because it was actually intended to be part of Mir 2. Um, and uh, of course, Mir 2 was never built, so it was repurposed to go to the International Space Station. So I, I just love the fact that Russian, the Russian side of the space station looks so old-fashioned, and in part, it is. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. So Zvezda launched on a proton rocket, um, and this is famously the one with a Pizza Hut ad on the side, um, which took a lot of criticism. But I think we've talked about it really early on this show that, you know, it's like whatever, like you make your money where you can. I think it's pretty awesome that Pizza Hut cared enough about space to think of this was, you know, worthy advertising space. And I think it's cool that, you know, the Russians were willing to take the money because it's just paint, right? Yeah, true. Yeah. So the, the clue talks about the fact that uh, Zvezda... Um, which is the Russian word for star. Zvezda didn't have uh, a backup built, like like a physical backup. They also flew it with no launch insurance. So if Zvezda is the star, the intern that you might have to shove on stage afterwards is the interim control module. A little, a little bit of play. I wanted to, to use the word intern because it was supposed to stand out as the obvious, you know, part to start working on the clue. Uh, the interim control module is basically uh, a fuel tank <laughs> with some thrusters on it uh, that could mount to the back of the Zarya module. And so all it could do was attitude control and reboost to the station. Um, it was planned, actually it was, it was constructed with uh, one to three years worth of fuel. And of course they, they never did fly it, but it still exists. It's still sitting in a, uh, in a warehouse somewhere. And a lot of people have suggested putting it to use. Um, initially they talked about maybe using it to help out Hubble, um, maybe, uh, you know, maybe to, to reboost Hubble or maybe to bring it down to where it was easier to work on. Uh, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, also, uh, there have been proposals to take unused spy satellite hardware and basically slap it on top of the interim stage or the interim control module and build a new space telescope for super cheap, which I think would be really cool. I like the idea of, you know, 1990s hardware uh, being turned into a a new science program. So back to Zvezda, Um, it was the third module to launch to ISS after Zarya and Unity because PMA-1 doesn't count as its own module. And 
Zvezda's purpose is to be a service module. Um, it carries a heavy load of the life support on station. Um, it also has two sleeping chambers. And here's the really cool thing is those sleeping chambers have nine inch windows, which I don't think anywhere else on the station can you have a little private window, much less a nine inch window, which is you know, relatively large for a personal window in space. Also, one other thing that I didn't know before I started researching this was that Zvezda actually has an airlock on board. Um, so the transfer chamber, which is now aft, it, it points backwards on station. Of course, there's a there's a docking port there. That's where ATV docks. And I remember in particular, I'll have to see if I can look this up, um, a video of, uh, of somebody going into ATV, but they started at the very front of the station. And so they drifted down the entire stack, just trying to give a, a sense of scale. And they got to Zvezda and Zarya, which are pretty darn spacious. And then they went through uh, the transfer chamber at the back of Zvezda and then they drifted into ATV and it was huge. I mean, just absolutely gigantic. And it really um, gave a wonderful sense of the scale. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the transfer chamber actually has pressure doors, both of the docking and the, the docking module end where you'd expect, but also has one on the other end near the near the crew cabin. And it can actually uh, function as an actual airlock. And in fact, during the construction of ISS, they actually used it at one point, just once for one EVA, but they actually put two people through it um, to go do a construction EVA, uh, which I think is really cool. And I never knew that. And I'm going to have to see if I can find some good images or video to include uh, in the show notes because I, I think that's pretty slick. So finally, I wanted to talk about the things next to Zvezda. Saying Zvezda really bugs me because... Uh, and I shouldn't, but it's just that uh, one of the early space dogs uh, was named Zvezdoshka, which is, it's really hard for me to stop at Zvezda and not add the diminutive. Anyway, so um, it has, let's see, four docking modules, one at the back, which we were just talking about. And then um, at the forward end, there's kind of that sphere shaped uh, section and it's got one docking port on the front and then one on the top and bottom. And so forward, of course, is Zarya and the rest of the space station. Right now on the Nadir docking port, they have piers on the Zenith docking port. They have Poisk. And then in the future, what they're going to do, hopefully, is when Nauka is ready to come up to station, they will actually deorbit piers and uh, and put Nauka there. So that's you know that's kind of the outlook or the the layout of mm-hmm. of the neighbors of this module. Well, well, that's assuming Nauka ever goes up. That's Here's yeah, open. we'll see. That's the longest delayed module of all time, I think. To ISS, well, I mean, maybe the centrifuge module is going to give it a run for its money. But yeah, definitely, it's definitely been a while. All right, so I have a clue for next week. You ready? Lay it on me. All right, next week in 1976, the clue is Dusty Rolling Shutter. That seems easy enough. All right, so I'll be disappointed if we don't get at least three correct answers. So if you, oh uh, boy, you're laying it down. If you think you know what this is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF or private message us on Twitter, and good luck. So uh, the best way is to use the hashtag. That means that you're guaranteed to get in the show because my bot will see it and put in a nice little list for me. So that's the best way to do it. You can do it any other way, though. You can private message us on Twitter. You can private message me on Reddit. You can post it in the show notes on Reddit. You can 
uh, email us, whatever, but you're not guaranteed. I, I try really hard to get every entry, but you're only guaranteed to get your name on if you use the hashtag and do an actual tweet and not a direct message, but you can do it anyway. And Chubby this week direct messaged me and he got in the show notes because I remembered this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that direct messages are, I think they're also good too, you know, because they kind of stand out a little bit more just so long as you maybe include the hashtag in the direct message. You know what I mean? Yeah. That might be a good way to go. And then that way, you, if you have the correct answer and you think, and you want to make sure no one else gets it because obviously you could cheat, then that's... It's a good way to ensure that you are the sole winner. Um, not that you win anything for that, except, you know, congratulations. First up in the news, uh, Cheops nears flight. So first of all, what is Cheops and what does it stand for? And am I saying it right? Right, right, right. So it's a European vehicle, so you can say it however you like and nobody, <laughs> nobody's going to mind. So mm. Cheops is not a, not a great acronym. It's Characterizing Exoplanet Satellite. So CH from Characterizing, EOP from oh, Exoplanet. Yes. <laughs> Why it's did they great. do that? That's a very tortured acronym, and they did that just to get Cheops. I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything. Like, why would you try so hard for a word that doesn't mean anything? Or maybe it does in Danish or something. I thought it was Greek, and, and let's see. Oh, is it? Right. Okay. Well. I think you're right. Okay, so a quick Google search here. Cheops, yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah, apparently it's it's, a, he was a god. Yeah, it's a god. Okay. Uh, so, so Cheops is going to be looking at exoplanets. And what's really cool is it's not looking for exoplanets. It's looking at exoplanets. So it's going to work through a list of known super Earths and Neptunes. Since it's working through this known list, it this is actually like the most efficient exoplanet mission of all time, because it doesn't have to waste time looking at planets that or stars that don't have planets. But anyway, here's what it's going to do. Um, we already know the mass of all of these exoplanets. That's really easy to figure out because the star wobbles. And in fact, that's how we detect a lot of these planets is by looking at the star wobbles. But what Cheops is going to do is it's going to determine the radius of the planets. And it's actually going to be able to determine the radius within 10%, which is really amazing for today's technology level looking at exoplanets. I'm so shocked that this is something that we can do. So basically what you can do is you can find the average density or the the bulk density of these exoplanets. How cool is that? (laughs) Yeah, it's very cool. I immediately start wondering if this could be... And I guess uh, you, the hardware it just isn't capable of it. But can you use this to search for more Earth-sized planets and not just super Earths? Because that's kind of what we need is to get the actual size, and then you can factor that over the density, and then boom, you know, you know what the actual planet is like. Because it's such an important thing to know is uh, how large is it? Because um, I mean, it could just be a big gas giant, or it could be a solid rocky planet. And so this is what's supposed to tell us that, right? This is what determines just that. Just by knowing mass, you've got a pretty mm-hmm. good idea of what you're looking at. Um, well, you, well, you do, but you don't know at, as well at, as you could. Right. So so Super Earths and Neptunes, I I think, can bleed into each other a little bit. And so that's exactly what, what they're doing. But yeah, it's it's so weird because you say that that's super important. But like... In practical terms, no, it's not. <laughs> in practical terms, no, it doesn't okay, matter. You're right. <laughs> but I, I totally see what you're saying because it's, it's a major part of us understanding uh, what else is out there and you know learning more about our own star system uh, in the doing. So yeah, pretty, pretty cool. In service of that, this vehicle has a single instrument. 
which is so bizarre, just one instrument, and it's a, a CCD photometer at the end of a telescope. That's all it is. I'm guessing that because it's a single photometer, um, they actually put it on the focal plane. So I think that they're actually going to be able to get really good uh, resolution because they're not reflecting it multiple times. Because I, I think when you have multiple instruments, you'll have one telescope and then be able to bounce the light into different instruments. So, so maybe they're getting a little bit of utility out that way. Um, I think it's probably more about just making it a cheap and quick mission. But yeah, just just one instrument. And it's not looking for things, it's looking at After, things. I just, yeah. I think it's so mm-hmm. cool. I'm looking forward to it. I seem to recall, maybe I'm misremembering here, but the fact that you can build an instrument like this, they can look at these planets and actually measure size. I thought that wasn't supposed to be possible with, I mean, I mean, short of something like on a massive scale. And yet here's this little relatively small instrument looking at planets. Yeah. So what did I miss in the past <laughs> 10 years where this is now possible? <laughs> right. So the, the key here is that they're, they're not imaging, they're using photometry, right? So they're, they're measuring the brightness of a star and the, the instrument they're sending up is actually like one of the most accurate photometers that's ever been in space. Um, and so all it's going to do is it's going to look at transits, which sucks because it means that you have to focus on planets that are close to their stars, right? Cause like if you're looking at something that's at earth's distance from its star, you have to wait a year to get a little flash of a transit. But if there's something closer, you could get a flash every month or two or whatever. Boy, a, a month is really, really close to a star. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, that's that's what it's going to do. So as the planet transitions across the face of the star, um, they're going to be able to measure the brightness. And what they're going to be limited to is not the accuracy of their of their sensor, which is more than accurate enough for the job at hand. It actually is limited by the graininess of the light coming off of the star, right? So the output of a star's brightness is not constant. It fluctuates up and down. And so they're limited by that, by that noise, the signal noise coming off of the star. Uh, But yeah, so it's, it's, just looking at transits. That totally makes sense to me just because, like I said, I couldn't conceive of looking at a planet directly. Well, we, so, I yeah. mean, we can do some amount of, of direct observation today. It's just not super helpful. Boy, this is turning into a very planetary science podcast. Um, yeah. Not so much on the space flight side of let's, things. But let's get away from this. <laughs> it, it's interesting to know because uh, exoplanets are fascinating because uh, well, we're finding out that there's just so many, yeah. but I still want to find that one perfect little Earth-like planet because, yes, I live on an Earth and I want to know if there's more of them out there. So if a, a different species built uh, a ring, say, in our outer solar system that allowed us to go visit other star systems and we were to pass through it and and find another Earth-like planet, what would you want to name it? I don't know. Not Earth 2 or Terra or anything so yeah, prosaic not, not, as that. I hate those. Yeah, not Terra Nova... Not Earth 2. And I, I also don't like um, stars and planets that are named after a person with the possessive. So like, um, you know, so-and-so's star. Oh, I think there's a couple. Well, there's like Barnard's star, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Bar- yeah, Barnard's star. That's what I'm thinking. And so you definitely don't want Barnard's world. Right. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what I would name it, but I would try to be a little bit more creative. Yeah, because uh, science fiction is pretty much run into the ground like all the Terra Novas. I'm done with those. I don't I don't want like any more of them, nor am I necessarily a fan of naming it after a Greek god because there's already so much Greek. I mean, I feel like there are, our culture is is rife with good names. I don't think that we'll have a problem. You know what? I think I would probably want to name it after a famous science fiction character just for fun. Yeah. 
like that'd be okay. Yeah, just to be a little bit more whimsical about it because uh I, I think early on though we should adopt the nomenclature of naming the star and then all the planets get numbers. Numbers or letters, I guess, yeah. Is that not how it actually works now? Yeah, I, I think so. But, like, everybody would want to give them common names. I'm like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Forget common names. Earth is actually Soul 3. Yeah. Like, well, that doesn't it, quite have a ring to it, but yeah. Well, no, it's either Soul 3 or the Terran homeworld. Like, let's end confusion now. Oh, you're not wrong. All right. Okay. <laughs> Moving on again. All right. Uh, next up, let's let let let's move on to our uh, next topic here. Um, Phantom Express engine testing. So, Phantom Express. If you don't know what that is, it's because uh, this is another one of those name change things, right? So, this is what was the DARPA project, uh, the XS1, but they have since renamed it Phantom Express, which sounds neat. Uh, speaking of names, this is a very name centric episode, so I think that's a good one, just because it sounds kind of cool and ominous yeah so i kind of feel like x37b should be the phantom express because it's super secretive and you know (laughs) and it's very phantom and i'm sure they're going to be doing some phantom stuff on xs1 but whatever so yeah the news this week is uh an engine test and this is an ar22 engine so and i actually am not familiar with it except that it's pretty much the same thing as the space shuttle rs25 engine so it's the same thing as the RS-25, but has the AR-22 ever flown before, or is this like a new thing? It's just an RS-25 with some modifications. Yeah, I don't think that it's ever flown. Yeah, quite possibly. The test that they're doing at the Stennis Space Center is uh, 10 runs of 100 seconds each, and that is because, and I think it has to be done within 10 days, because the requirement that DARPA has is apparently 10 flights within 10 days, so once every 24 hours. And this is a reusable first stage, and we should say that because the upper stage would still be expendable. So yeah, apparently at Boeing, who is the manufacturer of this, they are also working on the LOX tanks, which is cool. So they have those in a big autoclave right now. So there's actual hardware being produced for this vehicle. What's really cool is that um, Boeing is now uh, the prime contractor on SX-1, but um, Northrop Grumman and Maston Space Systems also entered uh, concepts during uh, early phases of of uh, the XS1 program, and uh, it's it's interesting that they wound up doing a space plane, you know, wanting to to land a first stage on a runway instead of going with Maston's vertical takeoff, vertical landing designs. Like I don't, I don't know exactly what they submitted, but I mean we know what what Maston likes to build. So it's it's interesting that they wound up selecting this instead of you know basically a Falcon Nine kind of configuration. I don't know. It, it seems that the X thirty seven B has been like landing on a run, on a runway for some time now, and the only company that can do vertical landing, at least from a high velocity first stage, is SpaceX because it's not easy to do. So maybe they had their doubts, and I, and frankly, I didn't know that Maston Space System. Uh, could even do such a thing or that they, you know, had like the wherewithal to do so because they, you know, focus on these much smaller engines that sort of do little hops around the moon or whatever, but not bringing something big and heavy back from Mach 5 or whatever. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you could similarly say that Blue Origin also doesn't uh, have the wherewithal, but the fact is yeah, that that's they what they're more building. Money. Like, they're they're yeah. going to do that. And and so I don't think that that's... And, and then comparing this to X-37B, X-37B has to be the way it is because it's a second stage, you know, it's it's up in orbit. And coming back down from orbit um, with a vertical landing is much, much less of a proven technique than landing vertically from a, a boost stage. So, Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I, that's kind of what I mean. 
Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think that it's hard to to draw direct comparisons between what DARPA sees in the uh, mm-hmm. in the current ecosystem. I, I think it's just a, an interesting observation to make that hey, this is this is what they wound up deciding to do, not maybe maybe breaking that down and trying to figure out the motivation behind it's maybe a little a little perilous but i don't know yeah you, you could you could very well be right well i think that the real reason is just that you have mass and space systems and and then you have boeing and one is a company that is much larger with much more experience and you know frankly money and resources than the other one so i, I can see why they went with boeing and if Blue Origin had competed because they didn't, right? Yeah. If Blue Origin had thrown their hat in, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they went with Blue Origin just because Blue Origin is, uh, you know, backed by a crazy billionaire. So, <laughs> yeah, it just seems that Mass and Space System, it's such a cool company, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, bringing something back from such high velocity uh, with one engine, presumably, it's really tricky because uh, SpaceX can do it so far. That's it. And I think Blue Origin will be successful as well. But, um, it's not easy to do. So yeah, I think I think if you just throw money at Maston, they could do it. I mean, probably yeah. Well, that's the thing. But who's going to do that? I mean, I don't think that DARPA. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much money they have to throw at Maston Space Systems, but they totally should because uh, they're doing some really interesting stuff there. So just very quickly, a couple of the DARPA requirements. Just a quick recap of what is expected of this Phantom Express space plane rocket thing. This needs to be capable of hypersonic flight to Mach ten or higher. Um, and again, that's just for that first stage because obviously it's going to need to reach orbital velocity. But yeah, for that first stage, it's going to come back, you know, Mach 10. That's actually higher than any first stage on any vehicle, right? Except for maybe, I mean, you, you could say the space shuttle because it goes all the way up and then comes all the way back down or at least the orbiter mm. section. But yeah, that's it. So, I mean, this would be kind of unprecedented as far as vehicles go. Um, it also needs to be capable of a one-day turnaround time, as I said, um, a 1,800-kilogram payload on a trajectory to orbit. It doesn't say what orbit. I'm assuming low Earth orbit, something like that. But yeah, 1,800 kilograms payload to orbit. A launch cost of less than one-tenth that of current launch systems. And so approximately $5 million per flight, which is, I'd say, a pretty good bargain, really. Um, It's not a huge payload, but that beats out SpaceX for sure. So spy satellites don't necessarily have to weigh that much. Um, So uh, Sam in the chat points out that Boeing's original, like the Phase 1 SX-1 proposal, actually was a joint proposal with Blue Origin. So here we are talking about uh, what if Blue Origin is like, oh, actually, no, Blue (laughs) Blue Origin was involved. So there you go. All right, time to do some short and sweet. We got three of them this week. And what is our first one, Ben? All right. ISRO works steadily towards human missions. So this week, the Indian Space Agency performed a pad abort test of their crew capsule's launch abort system. The test successfully launched the crew capsule 2.7 kilometers in the air and 2.9 kilometers out to sea. So like Apollo, this abort system relies on an abort tower and a slim fit boost protective cover. Like Dragon Super Dracos, it also has engines low down on the protective cover. And then like Soyuz, the cover sports grid fins to help stabilize it on the way up. However, unlike any of these, it only has two main chutes. Next up, uh, SpaceX may attempt an RTLS at Vandenberg later this year. Uh, The hint came in the form of an FCC filing for use of ground control antenna to send commands to the Falcon 9 once landed. Uh, The date range requested by 
SpaceX was September 5th through March 5th. Uh, there's no word yet on which SpaceX mission might be a candidate for first stage return, but one possibility is uh, SALCOM 1A, which is expected to lift off no earlier than September, and that's uh, yeah, September of this year, so just uh, three or four months away. You get to watch that. I mean, if you go down. I'll have to go down there. I've got one week in September that I can't go anywhere, but yeah, I definitely want to go down for that. And finally, our planetary protection methods may need an update. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine was requested to assemble a committee to review NASA's planetary protection procedures, and their report was published this week. Inside were several recommendations for improvements, including quicker resolutions to conflicts between the planetary protection officer and mission planners, securing a advice from third parties on missions to potentially habitable worlds like Europa and better coordination with commercial space companies. Yeah, it's neat to see that they're thinking about such things. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, this week we got one really cool correction, rather lengthy one, uh, yeah. from one of our listeners, Jason Friesen, who... Uh, uh, is not known for brevity, apparently, at least not to me <laughs> in this one instance. So this was a nice long email yeah. that explained uh, everything you got wrong with uh, last week's uh, This Week in Space Flight History. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and Jason went into like detail and like normally saying wall of text is a bad thing, but like I really appreciate the amount of detail that Jason went into and it, it really was great. And please um, don't ever feel like you're writing us with too nitpicky of a, of a correction. Cause like if there is too nitpicky of a correction, we just, you know, we'll read it and go, okay, great. That's fine. <laughs> and move on. We're like, in most cases, that's not, the, you know, that's not true. And in most cases we're going to be like, oh yeah, more, more information. Like let's, let's learn. Cause that's the main way this show gets better is by you people contributing and telling us, you know, what we missed. Like that's, that's how people learn. So it took a while for me to get through the whole email because I initially saw it right as I was about to leave for work. And I was like, Ooh, I don't have time for this. But anyway, I went through it and I, I just pulled out two, uh, two main bits that I want to talk about. Um, there's much more, uh, good detail. And, and Jason, if you want to just post this in our subreddit for everybody to read, that's great as well. But the two bits that I wanted to talk about on the show. Uh, so first, uh, Jason says that I said that throughout the shuttle's history, the idea was that another orbiter could be sent up to rescue a damaged orbiter's crew. And he says that NASA had talked about that before, but they didn't actually have rescue missions planned until after the Columbia disaster, um, which sounds right. I think I was kind of zipping past that, uh, but that, that sounds correct to me. And then with regards to shuttle being at station, Jason says that they needed a device called the RCO cable to be installed on the damaged shuttle in order for it to be landed remotely. So, you know, when they had damaged shuttles, they would fly the crew home on a safe shuttle and then still try to recover uh, the damaged shuttle. So I, I need to go find out more about this RCO cable. But anyway, um, so he continues, apparently this was first included on STS-121, and they actually left that cable on ISS for storage where it would be available if a damaged shuttle ever had to be deorbited. So that adds like an even uh, better glimpse into what might have happened uh, if they wound up with a damaged shuttle on orbit um, during STS-135 is, yeah, they they potentially could have flown at home. And all, all you need is a, a cable 
probably to, to bridge a computer gap that wasn't uh, designed right. to be bridged. So I, I think that's super cool. Yeah, it's just it's all very fascinating because I haven't I hadn't thought about how this was all working out towards the end of the shuttle program when you didn't mm-hmm. have a shuttle following and you know like uh, things just kind of get kinked up logistically. Yeah, it was a bit of a difficult transition, but. I guess we're still in the process of making that transition. So one day we'll be flying our own astronauts again, and uh, we'll see how things work from there. Maybe there'll be a backup uh, uh, Falcon 9 with a Dragon 2 ready to right. go. Do you think? I mean, I don't right. know. but Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, so, yeah, one thing I wanted to point out. So there, there was a, a set of missions called STS-3XX. Um, so they're the launch on need missions that are basically the the recovery missions. I, I didn't realize that there was an entire, I should have figured this out. There's an entire Wikipedia article on the, the STS 300 missions. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And in that they talk about R, the RCO system and then this RCO cable that they had to install to, to activate the system. So pretty cool. Uh, I'll include a link to the Wikipedia article because there's lots of good little uh, what-if tidbits uh, that are in there. All right. Thanks for that correction, Jason. And let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Hey, we got like hardly anything, but what do we have? (laughs) Yeah, we don't have a launch, but we do have a landing. Jeez, landing's the wrong word. So on July 15th, uh, at 8 a.m., uh, sorry, 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time, coverage is going to begin for the departure of Cygnus CRS-9 uh, from ISS. Release is scheduled at 8.35 a.m. Eastern Time. And yeah, of course, Cygnus doesn't land. It, <laughs> it burns up quite dramatically. All right, so that is your only upcoming spaceflight event. And with that time to deorbit, we will cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jeggies. Check him out at ronaldjeggies.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. So that's it for this week, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.